way to go, you guys. That was a, that was a great uh, Sunday, and I hope you enjoyed kind of getting out and serving the community together. We're looking forward to uh, doing that again next year. And uh, we strategically focused on the Minapore Sundance uh, community in anticipation of moving into that community. Uh, and, uh, and so we're excited to continue to bless that community and to serve that community um, uh, very intentionally in the future. That was obviously a practical implication or a, uh, just a working out of the series that we've been in, The Art of Neighboring. And we've, this is the fourth week and final week of the series. And why do we talk about the art of neighboring? Because I think it's an art that's been lost. I think in our culture, in the era of Facebook and Instagram, you know, we have thousands of friends. Well, some of you have thousands of friends. If you're like me, you, you maybe have hundreds of friends uh, or maybe have double digits or single digits. It's okay. Uh, but you have those friends online. But how many friends do we have in real life? How many people do we actually intersect in their lives? Or do we just uh, think that we are involved in people's lives because social media tells us that we are? And so we need to rediscover the art of neighboring, what it actually means to get to know your, your literal neighbors very practically. And we have looked at that the last couple of weeks. And we focused on uh, the Good Samaritan parable. And the Good Samaritan parable begins when an expert of religious law comes to Jesus and says, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Now, we have all sorts of thoughts of what eternal life means. And, uh, you know, many of us think when we die someday, when we go to heaven, what must I do to get to heaven someday? And for sure, living with Jesus for eternity is part of what it means to inherit eternal life. But that word life is the word zoe, and I've preached on this before, but just a reminder that uh, there's two Greek words for life, zoe and bios. And bios is where we get the word biology from. And bios means like life, like you're breathing, like you're alive, like you're not dead. And so everyone in this room is breathing, I believe, right? Okay. If you're not breathing, then, uh, well, I was going to say shout out and we'll help you, but that's not going to help you. Uh, so bios, it's like literal life. You are breathing. But all of us in our experience would know that there's a difference between being alive and being truly alive. There's a difference between breathing and there's a difference between truly being alive and thriving and living the type of life that you were destined and designed to live. And so when this religious Pharisee comes and he says, what must, or this religious expert says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's saying, what must I do to experience Zoe life? today and forever. And if you are someone here this morning that you feel like you're just breathing, you're just getting by, you're just surviving, you're surviving but you're not thriving, then this is a question that you have also asked. Jesus, what must I do to live a life that's the full life you designed and created me to live, not just to survive, not just to breathe, but I believe that you've made me for more that you've made me for more today as well as eternity. And so this is the question he comes with. What should I do to inherit the Zoe life? And Jesus responds with the question as he often does, and the man answers the question correctly that uh, he must love God and love his neighbor as himself. That's the summary of the, the whole law. And Jesus says, yes, that's, you're right. 
And then the text says, wanting to justify himself. And often when we come to Jesus and we ask him questions uh, and he responds to us with a question, uh, we seek a way to justify our actions. It's a human nature that we often defend our own actions. We have all sorts of reasons uh, for, the, for the forgiving for the way that we act or the decisions that we make. And we often judge others by their actions, but we ju- judge ourselves by our own intentions. So we have great intentions and we judge ourselves by those intentions, and, but other people, uh, that doesn't often work for us. So wanting to justify himself, like we often do, the man asks, who is my neighbor? And so Jesus go on, goes on to tell a story. You notice how Jesus often teaches us, right? He, he, you ask him a question, he asks you a question back. And then, you answer, and then you answer his question and then he responds to you with a story. He's not intent on just giving us intellectual information, but he's wanting this man and he's wanting us to dive deeper into relationship with him and often stories and questions and drawing those act as ways to draw people in. So Jesus responds with a story of this man that was beaten by bandits on a road between Jericho and Jerusalem. And, uh, and a priest comes along. And remember, the man that asked the question was a religious leader a religious expert, so uh, very, he may maybe have been a priest himself, or he was at least a Pharisee, uh, but a priest is someone who was called by God, who, who knew the Old Testament uh, inside and outside. They didn't have an Old Testament, New Testament then. They knew their Bible inside and outside, and surely this man would stop and help the other, but he didn't. And then next, a temple assistant came by, or a Levite, Again, someone else who uh, is very involved in the religious system, and yet they didn't stop either. And thirdly, as you know the story, a good Samaritan, actually we're presuming that word good, that adjective, a Samaritan comes, and a Samaritan, the connotations of a Samaritan would have been, uh, you know, someone who was, uh, they weren't really aligned with God's purposes, they uh, had mixed uh, worship practices and expressions that were outside of the the Jewish uh, practice, and they were seen as traitors because they intermarried with other cultures and religions. And so the Samaritan who was despised by the Jewish people comes along. And Jesus picks the enemy to be the hero in the story. So the Samaritan comes, helps the guy in the ditch, and then Jesus asks, who was the neighbor? And so there's a couple of ways we can understand the story. The first is that we should be like the Samaritan, and that's true, and that's a good way of understanding the story. And then last week, we kind of flipped it because uh, if you pay attention to the grammatical structure of the question and the answer Jesus gives, Jesus does not put the religious expert in the, in the story as the good Samaritan. He puts him in the story as the man in the ditch. And the reality is that if you're in the ditch and you are fighting to survive, anybody who's willing to help you, even your enemy, becomes your neighbor. When we are in places of desperation, when when all of the, you know, these constructs that we've built up in our lives, when they all fade away and it just comes down to us and living and humanity, at the end of the day, even your enemy can become your neighbor. 
The litmus test for the love of God is the love of neighbor, and the litmus test for the love of our neighbor is the love of our enemy. And this summarizes the teachings of the Old Testament. Now, what this parable kind of addresses is, I believe, one of the greatest lies of all time. And this is the greatest lies of all, in my opinion, of all time, and that's somebody else. Somebody else will help them. How many of you guys have driven by people that are, you know, their vehicles are broken on the side of the road and, uh, and you kind of have this thought that maybe you should stop and then you think to yourself, somebody else will stop. Anybody do that? Okay. I've, I, I do that in my car all the time. I do that on my mountain bike. I'll, I'll, I'll ride by somebody and they're, they're fixing a flat tire uh, and I'm keeping track of my times on my phone. And uh, I got a personal best I got to get. And I, so I kind of scream by as I'm pedaling by them. You okay? And before they can answer, I'm halfway up the hill. And they say, yeah, we're fine. I was like, somebody else will stop. So somebody else will help them. One of, I think it's one of the greatest lies of all time. Because if, if you don't, if you believe that God puts you in places for specific reasons at specific times and you don't believe in coincidences, then maybe that somebody else is you. Maybe that somebody else is me. Maybe when there's a need in front of you that Jesus is actually calling us to answer that need. And sometimes we think we'll leave it to professionals or for people that are more qualified for that. But Jesus loves to use everyday, average people like me and you. For sure, if you're like really, really gifted at something, that's awesome. Uh, maybe you can shred, you know, on a Fender guitar. Uh, maybe you won like most likely to see, succeed or best personality uh, in high school. Uh, it doesn't mean you're disqualified if you're awesome. It just doesn't mean you're more qualified. That every single one of us, if we are breathing, if we are alive, if we have bios happening in our bones, in our lungs, then God is asking you not to point the finger and wait for somebody else, but to be that somebody else. And this is what it means to rediscover the art of neighboring is taking that ownership and saying, I'm not waiting for somebody else to change my culture, to change my neighborhood, to change my environment. I am going to be the one that God uses to do that. In the end of the Good Samaritan story, because uh, I know what happens when we start to think this way, we, we get overwhelmed at the amount of needs that are in the world. It becomes paralyzing. It becomes exhausting. And I just want to address that very quickly. I think it's fascinating that the Good Samaritan in the story that stops to help, G to help the man on the side of the road and brings him to a place where he can be taken care of doesn't stay with the man. He continues on his trip. Like, read this. Then a decided Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion on going over to him. The Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his donkey, took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day, the next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. So the man, the Samaritan man, chooses to be inconvenienced for a day, but then he continues on his plans. 
And I, and I believe there's, a, there's some wisdom in here that, that God is not asking you or me to completely throw away our plans and respond to every single need. In fact, in Matthew chapter 28, where we, what, that we understand is the Great Commission, it says, when Jesus says, therefore go, disciple all people, baptizing them, teaching them, it's the end of Matthew, that when he says, therefore go, the Greek literally means in your going. So as you were living your life, as you were going from Jerusalem to Jericho, as you were going from home to work, as you were going to Starbucks, as you're going to school, as you're going to university, in your going, keep your eyes open. In your going, don't pass by the person that the Lord has put in your path. In your going, don't assume that somebody else is going to answer the need that's before you. Be that somebody else. And do what God is asking you to do, and then you continue on your way, just like, the, just like the Good Samaritan in the story. This morning, I want to draw our attention to another parable that Jesus tells in Matthew 25. It's one of those haunting things that Jesus teaches that I would like to delete out of my Bible. Does anybody else ever have that thought? Like, Jesus, why'd you teach that? Why'd you, why'd you, why'd you say that? Um, if there was a MIV version of the Bible, Matthew's International Version, it wouldn't have this text in it. But I think that's the reason it's in here is because it kind of hits us right where it hurts. In Matthew 25, in verse, starting in verse 31... So again, the context of this is Jesus, it's, it's one of the few places in Scripture where Jesus, we, we often wonder who gets eternal life and who doesn't, who's in and who's out. And we have, there's all sorts of great theologies and opinions on who's in and who's out, uh, but Jesus actually speaks to it uh, very rarely, and this is the one of the few instances where he does, and so we ought to pay attention. <clears throat> it says, but when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all, the, <clears throat> and all the angels with Him, then He will sit upon His glorious throne and the nations will be gathered in His presence and He will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at His right hand and the goats at His left. Then the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I think I cut off half a verse there. Then these righteous ones, we'll just skip that part. I, I didn't intentionally edit that. I'll have you know, this is not the MIV. I just miscopied it. Uh, then these righteous ones will reply, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink or a stranger and show you hospitality or naked and give you clothing? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will say, I tell you the truth, when you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Then the king will, will turn to those on his left and say, Away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire. 
And this is what happens when I prepare my own slides. I, I apologize. And to the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. For I was hungry, and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty, and you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger, and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked, and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison, and you didn't visit me. Then they will cry, Lord, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not help you? And he will answer, I tell you the truth, when you refuse to help the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. You know, it's, like I said, it's one of the few places in Scripture where Jesus actually breaks down for us you know, if you want to be a sheep or a goat, here's the deal. How do you treat the least of these? And what's fascinating in this story, in this parable, is that there's two surprises. That was almost the title of my, te- of my sermon this morning, two surprises. The first surprise is that the people that were sheep were surprised that they got in. They were surprised because they didn't actually know they were ministering to Jesus. That was the first surprise. It's a good surprise. There's also bad surprises. The second group was surprised because they thought they were in, but they weren't because they realized that they were denying Jesus when they were denying the needs of those around them, around them. And we often teach uh, in church that, you know, you need to accept Jesus to inherit eternal life. Well, what, what does it mean to accept Jesus? I think a fascinating question to ponder. What, what does it mean to accept Jesus? And, you know, often when we lead people to Jesus, we lead them in a prayer to accept Jesus. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that. I, I believe every faith journey has a starting point. You know, but Jesus never teaches us to pray a prayer and then you're good to go. You know, for sure, inheriting eternal life involves accepting Jesus, but maybe accepting Jesus is more than a prayer. Accepting Jesus is actually learning to accept the least of these. Not only opening our heart up to faith in the idea of Jesus, but opening up our practical living reality and world into the presentation of Jesus, whom we consider to be the least. If I were to ask you, I'd say, have you accepted Jesus? Many of you would put up your hands and say, yeah, I've accepted Jesus. I accept Jesus. But the reason I hate this passage is because it makes me question, did I act- do I actually accept Jesus? When, when he shows up in the least of these, do I- am I actually accepting him into my life? Or am I busy going from point A to point B and I'm not willing to be inconvenienced? You know, as a, I've been pondering this, and I've pondered this passage for years and when I feel brave enough to read it, I go back and read it and then I have seasons where I try and ignore it, wanting to justify myself. I'm, I'm much more like the religious man in the Good Samaritan story than the Good Samaritan I was chatting with a friend this, uh, a couple of weeks ago, 
and we were, we were talking about this passage, and he starts sharing, uh, sharing with me how he has actually opened his life up to an individual that we would consider the least of these. Uh, and I, I was just, I was challenged. Uh, I was inspired. And, uh, and I think sometimes I can teach an idea on a text, but it's always more powerful when we see this text being lived out in real time by some fellow brothers and sisters that we, uh, another son, Wester, that we go to church with. Uh, and I thought it'd be a great thing just to share his story with you this morning. I uh, unfortunately couldn't be here because uh, he's had other commitments with his kids, uh, but he agreed to letting me film him and then sharing uh, the video of his story, so I'm going to draw your attention to the screen. And for the remainder of my sermon, I'll get up and close at the end of the, the video, um, I just want us to be challenged and inspired by the story. Okay, Troy, uh, so you met an interesting friend uh, named Scotty. Can you tell us a little bit about who Scotty was, how you met him? Sure. Um... When I was a youth pastor in Victoria many moons ago, 20 plus, maybe closer to 30 years ago, I started a program, program called Out on the Town. And it was, the idea was we would take uh, kids and we broke them down into groups of four or five. And the kids were to do the contacting, the talking, the, we wanted them to do the, the, the ministry, not the adult. So we had an adult with a group of four or five kids, and they would go downtown, and the homeless population in Victoria is quite high, and so they'd always run into someone panhandling, asking for money. And so instead of just giving them money, the kids brought their allowance from whatever, whatever they had that week, and they would take the homeless person out for dinner. And, and then the kids... You know, they they would sit together with him, and I had, so I had a group, and I would sit off, you know, at a table close by, but making sure everything was okay. But they built the relationship, and so the very first night we ran that program um, with much fear and trembling, wasn't real popular with the parents, but the kids liked it. Um, we, my group, uh, had this drunk as a skunk Scotsman not that they all are I'm half Scottish um, he he was bombed out of his mind and uh, asked the kids for money and they said no well you know we're not going to give you money but uh, how would you like to come for dinner with us and he said sure and so his name was Scotty and Scotty sat down and they had this great conversation Scotty's very animated easy to be around um, like but you know like he was living on the street he stunk he he was definitely drunk and uh partway through their conversation with him that evening uh another group of teenagers who weren't a part of our group uh decided for whatever reason to pick on him they started lobbing french fries from their table over at scotty and Scotty lost his temper and he stood up and he pulled a knife out of his pocket. <laughs> and so I'm sitting at the next table thinking, uh, this might be the first and last night for out in the town. But uh, the kids were amazing. They, 
they they calmed him down they you know Scotty we're here don't worry about them you know like we're your friend we you know not all teenagers are like this we just want to hang out with you tonight and so they got him sitting down and talking again and I remember at the end of that night uh, Angela Sinclair um, she, I don't know she's probably 14 went to the counter and she had a little bit more money left and so the the toy uh, was a little stuffed thing. I can't even remember what it was. And she bought one for him and gave it to him and gave him a great big hug. And anyway, the, that became a standing date for the next, I don't know how many months. Every week we met Scotty at that corner, took him out for dinner, and... It was uh, it was amazing. It became a, a neat relationship. Those kids still, you know, talk about him. And so that's how I met Scotty. Well, yeah. So eventually, you know, I didn't feel the need to be quite so separate from it. And so I got to know him too, right? I was there, and and so uh, one night, uh, I don't know, twelve or one in the morning, my phone rings, and it's Scotty. Probably not a good idea to give him my own phone number. <laughs> but uh, he called and uh, he was in tears. And could you meet me at that McDonald's? I'm tired of living like this. Uh, I want to get off the street. I want to get into detox. And so I went and picked up one of our high school boys. And we went down, Sean Kitson and I. And we picked Scotty up and we got him into detox. And... It wasn't after that, after he went through the whatever 30-day program, uh, he got a little apartment that he lived in for the rest of his life. I just found that out a couple weeks ago. He was still in that spot. And he got a little apartment, and um, it wasn't a straight line, his recovery. You know, it was up and down, and but, uh, you know, for a friendship, forged out of that and you know I'd go visit him every once in a while we'd take him Christmas hampers sometimes he was bombed and you know but always thankful and he'd always dig out his photo albums and show me pictures of his kids that he, he'd lost touch you know he hadn't seen them in 20 years he used to be a draftsman in Edmonton and had a career and you know was married had three kids and like I believe is possible for any of us, you know, a couple bad decisions and he found himself on the street and lost contact with his whole family for decades when, by the time we came to meet him. So, uh, when you moved to Calgary, where was he? Was he still in Victoria? Right. Yeah. So, so eventually I took a job here in Calgary in ministry and um, Scotty was still living in Victoria in the same place and you know like happens with time and space friendships often fade <laughs> but uh, with Scotty you know that was the case to some extent but he would send Christmas cards to my kids by name every year he remembered every year he would he would call on birthdays. He would, 
I probably talked to him five or six times a year, you know, and over the years that became less and less, but uh, we stayed in touch and he stayed sober for the last 20 years of his life. And um, it was, there was one time a few years ago, I can't even remember now, maybe 15 years ago, where Scotty even arranged, he had by then, he managed to buy this beat up old station wagon with wood paneling on the side. And he drove it from Victoria to Calgary and come. He stayed at my house for a couple of nights and uh, my kids got to meet him and uh, it was crazy. It was pretty neat, pretty neat experience. So last October, you know how Facebook comes up with the reminder, reminds you that it's so-and-so's birthday and you never would have remembered otherwise. Um, I got a notification that it's Scotty McDonald's birthday. Do you want to wish him well today? And so I sent him a little note last October saying, you know, hey, Scotty, happy birthday. Hope things are going well. I haven't heard from you in a while. And didn't hear anything back. And, and honestly, I didn't think much of that uh, because a lot of time has passed now. We were 30 years past those out-in-the-town days. And then in the spring... I got a message, a Facebook message from a woman named Fiona saying, hey, I noticed that you wished my father well on Facebook on his birthday. I just wanted you to know that he actually passed away this past year and, you know, I just thought you might want to know that. And so I sent a message back saying, you know, Fiona, I'm so sorry to hear that. You know, I talked about my relationship with her father and she already knew she was like oh I you know my father spoke of you uh, which surprised me but uh, anyway she I I asked you know if if it's possible I don't know what you're doing for a funeral but um, I would love to just be there if that was okay with your family and she mess messaged back saying uh, well, actually, we're going to bury him in Edmonton because that's where my mother and sister are buried and he wanted to be buried with her. And so I said, oh, I'd, I'd love just to be there if that's okay. And anyway, that ended up turning into, well, would you do his funeral? And so two weeks ago, about, about two weeks ago, I drove to Edmonton. I had never met uh, her or her brother, so Scotty's son and daughter were the only kind of living relatives or direct relatives. And so I drove to Edmonton an hour before we were going to do the funeral and sat in a Tim Hortons, Frank, Tim's, even though I'm drinking this. I worked at Camp Day yesterday, I'll have you know. <laughs> um, so we sat over coffee and for an hour and a half, they talked about their father and there were lots of tears because there was lots of lost relationship with him because of alcoholism. And, but it was, I don't know how to put it into words, it was so redemptive. It, I, they talked about you know, 
that they love their dad, but that their relationship was so strained and, and became so difficult and there's so much sadness around all that. And I just listened and, and I told them some stories, you know, that I had with Scotty and you know, some of them humorous. And um, anyway, there was lots of tears and some laughter. And so I got to know a whole part of Scotty that I didn't know at all. Really, I knew him as a stranger. You know, it was easy for him to be kind to me, you know, because we didn't have the interwoven relationships, right? The people we're closest to that experienced the worst of us. And that, that was the case there. And so they were almost blown away to hear about this kind hearted man that I knew, but that wasn't the father they knew. And so, uh, it was beautiful. Like at, at the funeral, I felt like I felt like I was able to reframe Scotty's life a little bit for them so that they could see so they could see things differently. In fact, um, <laughs> well, while I was doing the funeral, it was just a very small group of us. Uh, it was at the graveside. And so it was a beautiful, sunny day. And a small group of us were standing there at the graveside and you know I'd, I'd spoken with Scotty about faith and I knew know he loved the Lord and it was uh, through brokenness like all of us his was just a little more visible and his wife was uh, Roman Catholic and had faith and so so I spoke boldly about the the two of them you know being in heaven together and as soon as I introduced that concept to them, I could tell, I could see the, the look on their face was like, uh, the, that doesn't sound good. <laughs> like They were divorced. They did not get along. The two of them bickering in heaven does not sound like a nice place to be. <laughs> so I could tell like, okay, there's some more reframing to do here. And so like, I just got the chance to talk to them about what is the kingdom of God like? And that, that, that God's ideal is for up there to come down here, but it doesn't perfectly because there's sin and brokenness in all of us. And, and so who, who God made Scotty to be, he wasn't because of alcoholism and whatever else. Just like all of us, it's different stuff. His was obvious. And so he... who he is, who God made him to be, you know, was this beautiful, kind-hearted man. And, and in heaven, that's who he is. All the, all the tarnishedness, you know, is peeled away. And then who he was created to be is who he is. And, and the same for their mother and the same. And it, it was incredible. It was like, They'd never thought of that before. And every once in a while when you get to communicate with someone in a way that you can see worldview changing as you're talking, uh, that's a God thing. And so uh, I drove back from Edmonton feeling like a rich man after we went out uh 
we went to Earl's and had a nice lunch together and they were shocked uh, that I would order a beer. (laughs) (laughs) But we had just a great conversation and anyway, I just drove back thinking this was God at work. You know, he, he had already set all this up and knew what he wanted to happen and how he wanted to redeem the relationship even after Scotty had died and that I got to be just even a little part of that was incredible. So question, Troy, in, in Matthew 25, it talks uh-huh. about um, you know, how Jesus really shows up in the least of these, right? And so in the, in the eyes of the world, Scotty maybe was seen as one of the least of these. Yeah. And as you encountered him, what... In, what ways did you feel like you encountered Jesus as you engaged with Scotty? I'm really glad you asked that question. I wasn't sure if you were going to be preaching Matthew 25 this week or not. But <laughs> so in, in Matthew 25, Jesus says, look, when you, when you minister and care for the least of these, you do it for me. When you ignore the least of these, you're, you're actually ignoring me. And I've been, been thinking about that text since this, all this with Scotty and thinking so often, you know, I think in Christian circles, we have these phrases or these go-to images, you know, we're the hands and feet of Jesus. But that's actually not what that text is saying. It's reverse of that. So if you look at the story, look at this story. Who is Jesus in the story? Is it Troy or is it Scotty? It is not Troy. Scotty is Jesus. Which, uh, I'll just be honest here. If you can opener my life, and if I was to, if you were to see into the inside of me, my inner world, There is a self-absorption and a sense of self-importance that is embarrassing. It runs so deep and I don't know how to get that out of there. I don't think, I don't think we get that out of there by trying harder. I think, I think what Jesus might be saying, I may be stretching the text a little bit here, but I think part of what he's saying is, I will use Scotty to redeem you, Troy. Because there's no other way to root out that sense of self-importance. That, like, and, and if you really look at it, like, Scotty's only the least of these in terms of, of our worldly constructs of power. And, you know, Scotty's a human being created in God's image, you know, and that was our whole point with kids in out on the town. Like, he's a human being made in God's image who made a couple poor decisions and ended up here, and so could you. And, and so to realize that here's someone God loves just as much as you. Serve him. Get outside of yourself. Someone, you know, this was someone, you know, he, there wasn't anything he could 
I couldn't leverage him for something in my life. You know what I mean? Like he wasn't going to lead some ministry for me. He wasn't going to... There was nothing there except friendship with Scotty because he's Scotty. He just... And, and really, especially in the end, there was nothing I had more to give him except friendship. Um, you know, when I moved away, there was no need for him to continue to care for me. And so, I don't know, maybe, <laughs> maybe if you ask Scotty, I was the least of these to him. I don't know, you know, this poor pastor who, <laughs> I don't know. But uh, I'm... I'm just thankful for him in my life. And for me, it's important to always have some people like that in my life because I, I know I need that just to get outside of myself. And so I've always tried to have someone who I have nothing to gain here. You know, they're not popular. They're not, I'm not, you know, there's, there's no advancement in terms of worldly perceptions of power, just except friendship. And what a, what a great story. Um, I would please thank Troy next time you see him for, for being willing to share that story. Uh, I'm going to invite the band uh, up on stage here as we uh, move to a close. Uh, but I love the flip that Troy brought in that interview because uh, I've said multiple times, like, you know, even serve day, let's be the hands and feet of Jesus, which is, which is true. We're called the body of Christ. Uh, we're the presence of Christ on earth. And th- those are true statements. But I think the powerful irony in Matthew 25 is that um, those who we maybe don't anticipate or expect to be Jesus end up being Jesus to us. And I think the shock of Matthew 25, and we see this throughout the gospel, is that we, the Lord loves us so much that he allows us in his love his loving relationship with us to set the rules of engagement, to set the rules of relationship. And we see this when Jesus talks about um, we'll be judged how you judge. Uh, you, as you forgive, so you'll be forgiven. Um, and to the unaccepting, Jesus becomes unaccepting. And it's just this fascinating theme in the gospel that Jesus allows us to, because he wants to enter a relationship with us, to set the rules of relationship. And if we're going to be unaccepting, then Jesus says, okay, that's, I guess that's how it's going to work. You're going to be unaccepting. You're going to be judging. Okay, then that's how you'll be judged. You're going to be unforgiving. Okay, then you're going to be unforgiven. And it really puts this mirror up in front of us. And this morning, more than anything, I hope you sense Jesus putting a mirror in front of you saying, you know, what type of world do you want to live in? Uh, Because I'm allowing you to set the rules of engagement, to set the rules of relationship. I'm not asking you to respond to all the needs in the world. I'm just asking you to respond to the one in front of you, the person in front of you, the Scotty in front of you. And, uh, you know, maybe about four or five years ago, um, I I haven't shared this with anybody uh, other than a couple of people last week and uh, you know we were praying about uh, you know as a staff you know, four or five years ago the possibility building possibilities having a permanent space and um, it's not just a recent thing we've prayed and talked about this for a long time and uh, and I felt like the Lord 
impressed on my heart uh, this phrase, until, until you are ready to receive the broken and hurting, I can't entrust you with a building. Until you are ready to, to function in the arena of like a you know, hospital in terms of the, the broken and hurting people that are all around us, when you're ready for that, then I will give you a permanent space because that's the reality of what happens when we become a permanent space. We get people in all their mess and brokenness. The, the least of these will, are going to be more and more present among us. And, uh, and my prayer is that we would be ready for them. Uh, and so I just close with this question. Are we ready for Scotty? And in terms of Matthew 25, that's also asking, are we ready for Jesus? Are we ready? I pray that we are. At one time, I took a guy, um, Malcolm McMillan, uh, but when we were in Victoria and I took him with me one time to meet Scotty and Scotty had a friend from Scotland and so when I introduced this is my friend Malcolm and they're Malcolm <laughs> oh Malcolm that's a good name you know with this I can't do the Scottish accent I just went on and on like over the moon about I had a friend named Malcolm what's your last name Malcolm like oh boy here it goes <laughs> Malcolm McMillan Malcolm McMillan well for half an hour I'm sure the whole apartment building knew the conversation that was happening they just went on and on and then we heard all the stories about like to ring that Mel Gibson's little neck, Braveheart. I grew up not three miles from where Braveheart really happened. And <laughs> there were so many, so many of those moments. That was uh, part, of the <laughs> part of the recovery that was maybe not the straight line up. That was a dip in the road. Yeah, yeah. But uh, anyway, yeah. lots of good memories. So good. <laughs>